This morning we turn our attention not, not just to a, a scene some 2,000 years ago, but to what we have entitled, I have entitled the series of the message or the series itself as Hope Found. The only reason that there is hope, Riverbend, is because of the events on a Sunday some 2,000 years ago. If you have God's Word with you this morning, turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. I want to read a large portion of the 24th chapter. Some of the verses will be on the screen behind me, but I want to begin even before those verses start. I'm going to start in verse number one, and it is the beginning of Resurrection Day. It is the beginning of that Sunday. Luke chapter 24, verse 1 and following read like this. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb. They are women, okay? They went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but... When they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened, they bowed their faces to the ground. The men said to them, catch this question, why do you seek the living among the dead. Why do you seek the living among the dead? The reason those ladies found themselves at that tomb was because two days prior to that, on a Friday, their Savior, their Messiah, their Rabbi was nailed to a cross as they looked on. Before that, he was flogged. And as he was on that cross, their Savior, Jesus, stated, It is finished. So in two days, these ladies found themselves at the tomb, frightened almost to death themselves because two men in dazzling apparel stand right beside them and ask this question, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and crucified 
and on the third day, rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale. Seemed to who? Seemed to the eleven. Seemed to his closest disciples an idle tale. They did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking, and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves. And he went home marveling at what had happened. Fast forward through the day. And verse 13 picks up. And that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? Catch verse 17's end. And they stood still. Looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him. Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? They said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. When they didn't find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. Verse 25, and he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them and all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it's toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road? And while he opened to us the scriptures... And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, 
The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Heavenly Father, as we spend the next few moments focusing on this one event, this one event that brings hope to your creation. Father, this one event that brings hope to every single man, every single woman, every single boy and girl in this room. Father, would you speak as only you can? Would you speak in such a way that you would cut our hearts to draw us closer to you? Not to to inflict pain, but to bring healing. To bring spiritual healing to men and women, boys and girls who need just that. Father, would you speak? Speak to our hearts. Speak to us as individuals. Father, would you speak as a church, your bride, Jesus? Might you give us ears to hear and might you open our eyes to allow us to see exactly who you are? We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. It would take a good imagination to put yourself on that road. It it would take an imagination that I don't even know, I don't believe that I have to think about what I would say with Jesus walking right beside me, trying to describe to Him, the one who went through these events personally, what just happened because He was playing as if He didn't know what had just happened. But that's what those two individuals found themselves in the midst of as they walked from Jerusalem, some seven miles, to the village named Emmaus. And they're in the midst of a conversation. They're they're going back and forth trying to grasp, put grips around the events of three days. Friday, seeing the death. At the end of the day, the burial of Jesus. Saturday, and all of the despair, and all of the disgust, all of the loss, the weight occurring. And now, Sunday, the first day of the week, having some mixed emotions because these ladies have gone to the tomb and they can't find Jesus. They don't know what is going on. So they're having this conversation and Jesus comes up beside them. 
And as he comes up beside them, there are some questions that he asks. So this morning I want us to to look at two different items. The first is some bad news and the second is good news. The, The bad news first. Discouragement for you and discouragement for me is easy to take a hold and to reign in a life. Look there at verse number 15 down through verse 17. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Verse 16, verse 17, and he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Discouragement. For you and for me, where you and I find ourselves often days, discouragement is easy to take hold and to take reign in a life. Isn't it? Isn't it easy for for you to look at your week, to look at all the things that are going on, all the things that have gone on, to say, oh my, I I find myself like those at Hee Haw, gloom, despair, and agony on me, deep, dark depression, constant misery. If it weren't for bad luck, we'd have no luck at all, gloom, despair, and agony on me with no, at the end of it. I don't want to stick my tongue out and spit everywhere. It's easy to look at a glass and say, man, that thing's half empty. Man, I wish I had something besides water in this cup. I wish there was something else. I wish I had this or that. I wish that my boss was this way or that way. I wish that my husband would fill in the blank. I wish that my wife would fill in the blank. I wish that my kids, I wish that my parents. It is so easy for us to be discouraged. Now, if there was a group of people who had the right to be discouraged, would it not be those who had just lost somebody? They had just lost everything to them. Had they not? I mean, Jesus said that He was the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus had told them for some three years that all these things were going to take place. Sure, it went over their head, but they had heard these things. And they even stated in their conversation, we had hoped, a little later there in verse number 21, we had hoped that He was the one who was going to redeem Israel. They were stuck. The disciples, That whole day, those three days, from Friday, Saturday, and now Sunday, they're stuck in this aspect of discouragement. They're stuck trying to figure out what is actually going on. 
Where is Jesus? And maybe that's where some of you are. Where is Jesus today? I had the opportunity to talk to a young man this week. And here was my question to this young man. I said, what, what do you, what do you believe about Jesus? Kind of took him aback. I mean, we were talking about something totally opposite of that. And I, and I just came out and I said, what, what do you believe about Jesus? Because in actuality, that is the question. That's the question for you. That's the question for me. That's the question for this whole world. What do we believe about Jesus? The believers in the first century believed at this moment that they couldn't find where he was. They had hoped, but now they were stuck, discouraged. But no matter where you are right now, as you're thinking about Jesus, as you're wrestling with who Jesus is, as you are trying to piece these things called life together, I'm so grateful that Jesus didn't leave them, nor does he leave you stuck. What does Jesus do? Jesus probes these men and women with questions. Why? So that they might grow, so that there might be maturity, so that one day there might be even perfection as he presents them to himself. This dead guy, right? Isn't that what he was? He was this dead guy. He died. He bled and died on a cross. They stuck him with a spear in his side. They laid him in a tomb. They closed the door. Put a stone over it. He is gone. This guy's now alive. F.F. F. Bruce states this theologian of yesteryear. He says, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we probably we should never have heard of him. Yet he is the central figure in all of existence. Jesus asked questions of these two followers. He asked questions of me. He asked questions of you. So that you and I will not remain discouraged. Which leads us to good news. This week, we are looking at hope being found in the empty tomb. Next Sunday is Easter Sunday, is Resurrection Sunday, and our message will go around the title, Hope Found in a Risen Savior. Very similar topic. This morning, I want to share with you three truths about this empty tomb, about the relevance of this empty tomb, and also give you some evidence Biblical, historical evidence of why that allows you and me to have 
hope. Next Sunday, I want to share with you probably the greatest testimony, the greatest creed of the risen Jesus, which is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And uh, Paul speaks of it. And it's not going to be a technical sermon next Sunday. It's going to be a sermon of rejoicing and great hope because of the event. But let me, just for a moment, try to get some technical aspect of this resurrection through my thick skull and into our hearts and our minds. Three truths about the resurrection. The first is this. The resurrection, in in trying to make an argument for the resurrection, the first would be this, that the resurrection actually is historical. It is historical. There are those that never believe that Jesus was Messiah. And they believe that he died on a cross some 2,000 years ago. There's a Jewish man by the name of Josephus. There's um, Roman writers of the day in the 40s, the 50s, the 60s A.D., even to the 100 A.D.s who are writing annuals and histories of the events of that day who all historically state Jesus lived, Jesus died, even to the point that these pagans who don't believe in Christ have stated their followers, that the followers of Christ did believe this resurrection was true. And it set them apart from the others and the other religions. The historical documents are there. I alluded to Lee Strobel in A Case for Christ and also his book entitled A Case for Easter all give arguments and interviews of theologians and those who are way smarter than I giving arguments about this event. But not only is it a historical fact, you you and I need to understand that the resurrection is a rational fact. You're like, rational? I wouldn't think that it's rational. It's rational. Because this word states that there was a beginning, and in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And something happened after He created the heavens and the earth. You and I, mankind, went against God, and that is bad news because it brought into the world sin. And every single person that was born into this world has a sin nature, but God knew that there would be this that came about, and therefore He said, I've got to make a way so that Brian Tillman and so that you and you and you and River Bend and those that live in Hernando, those that live in Mississippi, those that live in His world might have a right relationship or could have a right relationship with Him, which brings about good news. He sent Jesus, and Jesus lived a perfect life. Jesus died a death that you and I deserved. Jesus rose from the dead, 
conquering sin and death so that you too might conquer sin and death. It is a rational event. Either one of two things is true, but one, you and I must give a thought to these statements. Either Jesus is who He says He is and did what He said He did. Or, this is the biggest hoax in all of existence. It's either one or the other. Without the resurrection of Jesus, there is no hope. There is no meaning. Without the resurrection of Jesus, you and I are just molecules that happen to come together. And you and I are just molecules for this amount of time in between a date and a date. And there is no existence outside of those two things. In its rationality, the resurrection is a revolutionary revelation about immortality. It is a demonstration of all of Christ's claims and the trustworthiness of all of Christ's promises. The resurrection is a reminder for you and for me of the saving work of Jesus. Not only do we see that it's historical and it's rational, but a final argument is to be made that the resurrection is empirical, meaning that it is ver- it's verified by observation and experience, not just theory or logic. And you're like, all right, how can you verify it? Well, let me verify it this way, try to verify it this way for you. The disciples, when they wrote John, Matthew, when Mark heard about Peter and he wrote Peter's account, when Luke went and saw and talked to all the different eyewitnesses that he wrote the the gospel and then he wrote the, the book of Acts, when Paul came along as an apostle and he wrote all the different letters from Romans all the way through, through 2 Timothy, none of them explained the resurrection. What do you mean by that? None of them said, hey, here's what the resurrection is. Let me explain it for you. No. They were the evidence. James, the brother of Jesus, hated him while he was alive. While Jesus was alive, he thought he was a lunatic. He went to a house where Jesus was in the middle and all this crowd was around him and he was healing this guy who was lame. And he came to the door and he said, hey, I need to see Jesus. He's my brother. I got my mom with us and uh, we need to get him home because he's crazy. And uh, Jesus and all of his followers looked and said, "Uh, here are my brothers. Here's my mother. Whoever's doing the will of the Father. And they just thought he was crazy. Until the death, and the burial, and the resurrection. And after that, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that he went and talked with James, and that James was 
A believer. Why? Because he saw his brother die on a cross. He saw his brother laid in a tomb. And then after that, he saw his brother face to face, talking with him, walking with him, alive again. And that changes somebody. It changed Peter. Peter was scared to death. I don't even know him. He was scared of a 12-year-old little servant girl. He cursed another servant girl. He wanted to be as far away as possible until, until Jesus showed up in an upper room that first Sunday and said, Hey, Peter, here's my hands. Here's my side. Why don't, come up here and touch me. Peter, I'm hungry. Do you have anything to eat in this place? Okay, I'll eat some fish. Thank you. Until that moment, he was scared to death. He went back to his home, as we saw here, and he was going back to work as a fisherman until Jesus showed up in his life. They did not explain or give evidence of the resurrection because they were the evidence. John closed out his gospel and he said, These things are written that we might know and see because of the witness of who we are. It must be experienced. It was experienced by those in the first century. It has been experienced by some 20 centuries of people, men and women, boys and girls. N.T. Wright, you see the quote on the screen, N.T. Wright states this about the resurrection. He says, the resurrection involves a definite content and a definite narrative shape. The meaning is constant throughout the ancient world. It has not changed. The resurrection has a definite shape. There is some content. There's some substance around it. And it has not changed. Those in the ancient world, they thought, hey, here's what we're going to do. We're going to find the tomb and we're going to enshrine it. I wouldn't say go here today, but in 2008, I found myself in Damascus, Syria. And uh, as I was in Damascus, Syria, the uh, couple of workers that I was with, they said, hey, do you want to see something uh, pretty, pretty neat but pretty gory? And I said, why not? So we go into this Muslim temple, and... Um, there is a huge room, I mean, 30 times bigger than this, okay? And they are all bowing down and they are all praying as they normally would multiple times a day. And then they said, hey, all right, you see that, but, but look over here. And there was a whole section of this temple, of this mosque, where... Um, there were people walking around what looked as a casket. And um, it, it was a stone casket. And they were walking around. And every now and then they would stop and they would beat their head and they would beat their breast. They would beat their head and they'd beat their breast. And they'd walk around it a couple more times and they'd beat, beat until their head was open wound. Until what... Their hand hit here, it showed up here, and I was like, who in the world, what, what is that? And they said, those are the bones of Muhammad's brother. Those are the bones of Muhammad's brother. And this whole section of Islam believes that he is their leader. 
And they come here every single year to do just that. To pray to Him. To do just that. To pay homage to Him. They have enshrined. And they aren't the only ones of ancient days. Peter himself said, hey, don't you remember David? He died and his bones are still with us even to this day. In olden days, just like today, if somebody dies, they try to enshrine that person. They try to enshrine that so that they can remember all those things. The tomb of Jesus is empty. Multiple places in Jerusalem. Some believe that it's in this section of town. Others believe that it's in this section of town. But no matter what, you go to a tomb, it is empty. Multiple places where church history has stated this is where he is or this is where he is or was or was. It is empty. What about biblical evidence for Jesus' resurrection? Isaiah chapter 53 written some 700 years before Jesus was born, prophesied of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. David spoke about it in the Psalms that this would occur. Jesus predicted His own resurrection in Matthew chapter 12, Mark chapter 8, and John chapter 2. Jesus died. Jesus was buried. He appeared to numerous people, numerous times in 40 days after His death and His burial. His resurrected body was the same as a pre-death body, meaning this, that the disciples were able to recognize Him, that He was able to eat, touch, walk. Jesus' resurrection was recorded as Scripture soon after it occurred. Mark's account was as soon as, some believe, as soon as A.D. 37 as he's walking around with Peter hearing all these things some four or five years after the event itself. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, one of the earliest creeds we'll look at more in-depthly next week. has been put together as an early church creed, all surrounding, all formulated, pieced together because of this one event, the resurrection. Convinced his own family, I spoke about James a moment ago, and finally, ten. Even his bitter enemies confirmed the resurrection. You say his bitter enemies, how do we have that confirmation? Paul was staunch against Christ. He was putting people in prison. He was holding cloaks while men stoned a follower of Christ. He desired to leave Jerusalem, to go to Damascus, to do just that in Damascus as they were doing in Jerusalem so that this would be stomped out. A staunch enemy of Christ. Once he saw a risen Jesus... A resurrected Jesus. This enemy became a sent missionary to bring hope to a world through Christ. So what does that mean for you and what does that mean for me? I know that this morning's passage and this morning's sermon had a different feel. Let me try to draw it home with some application you 
because Jesus Christ is resurrected. Not that he came back to life. That's, that's not the, the question. I mean, there was a, a 12-year-old girl that he brought back to life. There were those that, that touched a handkerchief of Paul's who came back to life. But Lazarus came back to life. But you can't go to Jerusalem or you can't go to, to Bethany where Lazarus lived some 2,000 years ago and see Lazarus because he died. Uh, we don't know when he died. We don't know when that 12-year-old girl died again. We don't know when, when that person who was touched by the handkerchief. We don't know when th they came back to life. But no, Jesus was resurrected. Meaning this, that he died and that he came back to life and he has lived and will live forever and ever and ever more in a physical body forever. One day, you and I will be resurrected. Some of us will be resurrected to death, meaning this, that we will have a body and that body will be with us and we will spend an eternity away from God in hell. Some of us will be resurrected not to death, but to life. And we will spend an eternity in the presence of Almighty God as the bride of Christ. This resurrection, this event, brings meaning to your life. It, means, it brings meaning to why you go to work on Monday. It brings meaning as to why there is a purpose for you living beside the people that you live beside. Living amongst the people that you live amongst. The conversations that you have. Just out of nowhere to ask somebody, what do you believe about Jesus? It is not a random conversation starter. It is the meaning of every aspect of your and my life. What do you believe about Jesus? He changed all of eternity. He changed all of existence. Yet, so often, I would dare say, I know in my own life, and I would dare say in every one of our lives. We shy away from this event. We shy away from speaking of this individual. And that's all the enemy desires. He wins if you and I do that. If we don't say the name Jesus, if we don't bring the name Jesus up in conversation on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, or Saturday, or Sunday, then our enemy, no, his enemy, wins. That's why theologians and philosophers who believe in Jesus, Francis Schaeffer, William, Craig, Brian, and others, they run to the resurrection. Because without it, there's no argument. Without it, we're, no, we're in no better state than 
You pick any direction and you go and find somebody. We're in no better place than they are. But with it, there's hope. There's hope for your relationship with your wife. There's hope for your relationship with your kids. There's hope for your relationship with your boss. There's hope because of an empty tomb some 2,000 years ago. There's hope with a, the stress and the tension, the hardship, and even as Paul would state in Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, in this light momentary affliction, this persecution that is raging more and more in our day, those things pale in comparison to the gift. The gift that's given to every single one of us through one who rose from the dead. Heavenly Father, God, maybe it was uh, Lord, it, it is for you. It is for you that, that we need to have an argument. That we need to, uh, even before the argument, we need to have a discussion, a conversation to see where those that come in contact with us and those that we come in contact with, where they stand with you. God, you alone. Father, you alone are worthy of worship. Father, we're about to stand and sing. And, and I pray, Lord, that I say this, I say this almost every Sunday silently, Father. I say it often verbally. But Father, I pray that this would be more than lyrics that we sing because we know it. Father, it would be a heart crying out to you because of what you have done. Lord, move me. Move us. Father, open our mouths to those that we come in contact with so that we might share about you today this week. Father, we ask it in Christ. You stand and join with us. The invitation is for you. We invite you to come. Obey our great God this morning. We ask it in Christ's name.